This is Interviews with Technical People with John Robertson and James Savio, a podcast where we interview technical people in STEM fields to discuss the past, present, and future from their perspective. Today, we are joined by Dr. Hakeem Olushay, an astrophysicist, author, STEM educator, multi-patented inventor, and science communicator. He recently served as the Space Science Education Lead and the Space Mission Director at NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C., and will soon release his book entitled, A Quantum Life, My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. Hakeem, Dr. Olashay, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you gentlemen. You know, I love you guys. We I don't know if your audience knows that, but you know, everybody that knows you loves you. You're, you guys are those guys, right? To know you is to love you. That What an honor for you to say, because let me give a little bit of background. So many of you who are listening may know Hakeem uh, from his various appearances on television, media, from his fantastic research and so on and so forth. But James and I, that's not the first place we met him. He actually taught us some of the most fundamental physics courses that we currently use in our career. Yes, he was our professor. In fact, he taught me four physics classes, full physics classes, which is a record. So however good or bad I am as a physicist is thanks to this fantastic scientist in our midst. I don't, I don't know about that. It's about, listen, what is more impressive, the, the, the distance traveled or the height achieved? I like the distance traveled myself. I like, I like height achieved. Oh, <laughs> because yeah. because once you achieve a velocity, it it okay. Assuming there's no friction, you just keep on going. <laughs> Height requires energy. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. Does, so does Uh-oh. distance. Is that the yeah, right answer? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> I, I I can't take all the all the credit or all the blame. <laughs> <laughs> At least We're a substantial degree angle guy. <laughs> <laughs> um. It's great to have you on the show. So thank you. We, we graduated from FIT in 2013, and we really just wanted to ask you, uh, first and foremost, um, so what do you do now? What have you been up to for the past few years, and, and where has life taken you since our paths last crossed? Man, since 2013, a lot has happened. I see. Um, you, were, you were just a professor and just starting to get into TV then. That's right. Well, you're absolutely right. But I'd actually already been in TV for five years as a technical advisor, right? So I started doing that in 2008. And the funny thing is my very first day as a technical advisor, the head of the network says, you know, she asked me about my research and I tell her and she turns to her staff and she goes, oh my God, you see that? That's the kind of enthusiasm we need on the air. Hakeem, I must put you on TV. A year goes by, no TV. Hmm. Two years go by, no TV. Three years go by, no TV. So, you know, it took, you know, at near the end of year four, where I was given a very small role. And the um, it was 2013. And the, the, the producer, you know, I didn't know how TV worked. And the thing is, is that when you watch a television show at the end, you see it says like, you know, Harpo Productions or so-and-so Productions. That's the people that actually do the making of the TV show, the production company. The network commissions them to make the show. You know, they're like, okay, here's $500,000. Make the show. Whatever you don't use, that's your profit, right? Hmm. <laughs> so um, your relationship as the talent 
is with production companies, you know, and if you are a talent that is, uh, you know, such that the network wants to, to keep you from going to other networks, then the network will put you into a network contract. Right. Um, and so, uh, what, what happens is the, uh, I end up actually getting a network contract in 2015. And that network contract allows you to, to do what? So what it does is it means they guarantee you a minimum amount of money. There is a per episode uh, fee arranged. That's, you know, typically several times what a, a non-contracted contributor would get. Like if you're some scientist, you're like, oh, come speak and, you know, we'll record you and you show up on the show. Yeah, if you're, if you're in a network contract, you you get several times what that person would get, right? Hmm. Um, and and you have a relationship with the network, um, and and so my network contract expanded where uh, I simultaneously became t- a talent contract and the uh, chief science officer for the network, right? <clears throat> um, and so, but but mind you, this is after working with them since two thousand eight. So really, I'm seven years in at this point, right? Hmm. And so when I was an advisor, you know, I was advising on many things, on content, on talent, on on how to approach shows, um, <clears throat> you know, and showing up at all these events. Like, I didn't know there was a whole bunch of events that networks have for uh, advertisers, right? You know, these things. Back then, they were kind of big and posh and, you know, really, really, uh, you know, when you're around the salespeople, <laughs> I remember I saw, I was like, oh. I've never actually seen a suit before. I thought I saw suits, but now. <laughs> but these are different level of suits. This is a suit. This is, <laughs> and I couldn't help. Guys, you know me. You know that, you know, whatever gene it is that people have that gives them embarrassment and shame from being ignorant, I don't have it, right? <laughs> you know, so I went up to the dude. And I was like, hey, man, you know, it was a head of sales, right? They're like, oh, we got to introduce you. And I was like, I just got to ask, how much does a suit like that cost? <laughs> he didn't tell me. He didn't tell me. He didn't tell you. So I asked him again. <laughs> I and, didn't let him slide. Uh-huh. Don't let him off the hook. And uh, he was telling me, he's like, oh, you know, you get a good baseline suit for three to five K. Whoa. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. I haven't. Yeah. I'll never have one of those <laughs> <laughs> types of suits. So. I also will never forget the first time that I coincidentally just saw you on a TV somewhere, like not planned. I was at Tulane University. I was getting my PhD. And it was kind of like the central area, you know, where there's some like food establishments and so forth. And there's right. a big TV that was on. And it must have been about 2013. And it was when that large um, meteor appeared over oh, Russia. And it was a yeah. huge event because it was, it was a scary yeah. thing, you know, broke, uh, oh, broke yeah. out windows everywhere. And sure enough, they brought you on, and I and yeah. I just looked and I said, "Oh my goodness, I know that person." Yeah, and, and I and I stopped and watched. Um, well, you know what, John? It's funny you choose that moment because that was actually my very first network news appearance as a, as an authority, as a space really? authority. That was yes. the first one. Yes, and it was very eye opening <laughs> because when you do the types of documentary type shows that I do. The production teams are very knowledgeable about the uh, topic and the same people that you talk to prior to recording the show are the same people you talk to when you record the show. 
All right. Now, for news, it's different. What happens is you talk to a producer and you talk about what you're going to talk about. Okay. And then when you get on the air, you're on the air with their host, their anchor. Okay. You know, you're in a different city. You're in a studio, which looks like, you know, it's really just a room with a background and a camera and somebody running the camera. You know, it's very basic, right? It's done on a cheap, right? But it looks legit on TV. Uh, but one, once the, the anchor starts asking you questions, it's like what they say about battle. All the plans go away when you make contact. All the plans on, on the news, all the plans go away when you make contact. They will ask you anything. And man, the first the first question that I was asked was the difference between like meteorite, meteor, right? And Love that question. That, 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 that's a test question about it's details. Question. I don't know. And, and luckily, I had just read, you know, completely independently of uh, the news thing. I, I, you know, just the volumes I read about stuff, right? I just happen to read about, you know, bolide versus a media versus a meteorite, you know, air burst and, you know, and all this. So I had the questions on hand and so far I've been lucky, right? So I'm just like, you know, everybody's ignorant, right? There's way more that we all don't know than any, you know, there's way more to be known. If you had all of human knowledge ever, there ever has been and ever will be, and you take that and subtract it from all there is to be known, right? All there is to be known is left unchanged. That's my, <laughs> that's the difference in their sizes. Uh, so, I, you know, so anyway, it, it, it's luck when you have the uh, answer to every question. That's going to be quite an adrenaline rush when you get on there and, you know, the camera's rolling live. For, for me, it's different because I have a high adrenaline rush normally. Hmm. So it's all about centering for me. It's all about slowing down and centering and, uh, you know, making sure I don't just run amok because I'm such an excitable, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, Oh my God, you know, my brain starts moving so fast that my mouth is trying to keep up, you know, (laughs) because it's exciting. Listen, people, uh, you know, people say they love science, but you know, you know, as well as I, that the doing of science can be pretty mundane, right? So to love the doing, you know, it's a different thing than being good at the doing, right? You can be good at the doing without loving it. You can be like, ah, I hate you sometimes. But um, the, the, you know, nature, what we're studying is like freaking, it's just such mind-blowing wondrousness that, uh, you know, I forgot where I was going with that because I just got (laughs) told I was full of awe suddenly, right, at, at nature as I was sitting there contemplating what I mean when I say that, right? Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry. It's funny that you should say that because you may remember this. I very nearly joined your research lab at Florida Tech, but yeah. I never wound up actually doing it. Um, I think definitely at that time, I probably wasn't ready. Um, you know, we, we talked about it, almost did. Other people yeah. had joined. But what I saw was your lab was very sophisticated you know you guys were just data heavy you were analysis heavy all that yeah. stuff and it was as an undergrad I, yeah i'm i think i'd be able to step in now and maybe contribute yeah. but i think at the time i probably i, I just wasn't ready for it so yeah. like yeah. how 
I guess I just wanted to ask, like, I, I so I never really understood then what all your research was. I knew that you guys were just a well-oiled machine, yeah. but I never really saw it from the inside. So, like, what, what has yeah. been your research over the years? Yeah, so <clears throat> at the time I was at Florida Tech, I basically had <clears throat> two research thrusts. And a third was uh, generated by the uh, uh, something that was noticed by Dave Chesney, right? So you remember my main two PhD students were Bryce Orange and Dave Chesney. Then I right. had master students and then a whole bunch of undergrads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so, so the solar physics side was run by Bryce and Dave. So I didn't really have to interact very much with the undergrads um, on that side of things because – uh, you know, I'm very interested in their growth. And just like with learning, you learn more by teaching than you do by being a student. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I knew that for their growth and development, them leading others was, was going to just make them grow rapidly. Right. And, you know, and I know what the competition is out there in the world. So that's what I'm trying to get out, you know, because, you know, for us regular folk, we're starting at a different place. Um, you know, I'll give an example. When I got to my PhD program, three of the guys in my research group, their fathers had PhDs in physics, right? And so if you go to one of these top tier places, you're going to find that among the students, right? For those of us who are more, you know, our parents, we weren't in the world of STEM uh, growing up, you know, how do you compete with those people, right? By the time you're 22 and they're 22, you know, what you've seen three or four times, they've seen 12 times, right? Because that's what really matters is how much you've seen. So how many times you've seen something. So if you're seeing calculus for the first time when you're, say, 22 years old versus for the fourth time when you're 22 years old, you know, it, it, it uh, you know, it, it makes a difference. So anyway, so I'm like, okay, I got to get my people from here to there as efficiently as possible. I want them to kick the butts of, of, Everybody who thinks they're the greatest in the world, I want anybody from my group to, to, to know that they can kick their butt, right? Um, so my master student ran my astrophysics side. So what you guys don't know is at the time that I came to Florida Tech, I literally had a back surgery like one month earlier. And I, I remember, you, I remember yeah. you're still having back problems when I was in class with you. Yeah, man. I was jacked up for years, right? So when my back uh, surgery occurred, I was unable to function, right? I was in, you know, 24 hour incredible pain. I was taking uh, narcotic pain meds. I didn't want to take the stronger stuff. So I took, um, you know, so I wouldn't take like Percocet or oxycodone, but I take the hydrocodone because, you know, I didn't like my brain being clouded out, but even that had me too clouded out. So for like a couple of years, I really was unable to be productive in research. All right. So at, but the thing, luckily I had already won my grants. Right. And so I had some time to, uh, you know, recover from that period. And I thought to myself, I said, well, you know, solar physics is a very mature area and it's very complicated for that reason. You know, being in an emerging area is better and having emerging skills will allow me to be competitive with people like yourselves who are, you know, a couple of decades behind me. Right. So what would tie the two together? And I thought, oh, big data analytics, Mm -hmm. machine learning and 
that turns out to be the place where astronomy and astrophysics are going. So what I did was I was able to find the leaders in the field, which is this guy named, one of them is a guy named Jokoy Vezic. He had worked on the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. He had become a, prof- a professor at University of Washington and was one of the principal scientists for what was originally called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope and is now called the Vera C. Rubin Observatory. Um, and I started doing survey science with Joko and Andy Becker and the rest of their crew. And so I did a big study of what LSST is going to be able to achieve and what the scientific infrastructure needs to be in order to maximize the science output. And I did a uh, work with data as well as one of my two glue, I mean, excuse me, my <laughs> Florida Tech uh, PhD students, this guy, Kyle Johnston. He was, he was Oswald's PhD student, left the department, went out to industry, did big data, then came back as my PhD student. Hmm. And so we did a paper that was based on the analysis of 5 billion observations of four, 24 million objects from the linear survey, right? And, we all, and I also published linear survey data papers with Joko's group. Um, so you, I had those two groups, the solar physics group and the big data analytics, you know, galactic archaeology group. But then Dave Chesney noticed that a process on the surface of the sun that accelerates particles is scale invariant, which means that even though it happens on the scale of millions of kilometers on the surface of the sun, light years in the cores of galaxy and on a scale of galaxy uh, of kilometers, in planetary magnetospheres, we could potentially harness it and do it in the cubic meter. Hmm. And I was like, that's a good idea. Show me. And so Dave went and uh, he was like, you know, actually, the physics of it has already worked out. It's the engineering of it that needs to be done. And I said, okay, show me. And we started working through it. And I said, Dave, you're on to something. And so it became the second half of his PhD dissertation. And so the thing about this mechanism is, so typically uh, when you accelerate ions for space, they use a cyclotron. Now, a cyclotron is the same thing that they use to smash particles together to accelerate particles, right? That's what Ernest Lawrence won the Nobel Prize for was a cyclotron equation. So with a cyclotron, you can get a particle up to any energy you want, but you got to make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay. So the size of it limits the energy you can achieve. So the top uh, ion acceleration technologies we use accelerates ions to roughly 50 kilometers per second Hmm. using the cyclotron technique. Doing it the way the sun does it you can accelerate ions 60 times faster to 3,000 kilometers per second. Wow. At, at a higher energy efficiency. Yeah. So we've, we got the paper published, um, you know, but under the guise of, oh, here's a way to test this astrophysically interesting magnetic process in the lab. Oh, and by the way, these ion beams you generate, they're great for ion acceleration too, right? Hmm. <laughs> I say. I also remember. I thought you had a undergrad. Uh, didn't Pat Champy discover a uh, supernova in your group? Not in my group. We didn't do supernovae. 
I thought that was in your group where he accidentally accidentally discovered a supernova. Oh, because you know what? We were observing variable stars. So maybe that's what happened. Was that variable stars? He caught a supernova. Oh, I remember that event. Yes. I remember that event. We were one of the early – we accidentally caught a supernova early in its explosion. We weren't the uh, discoverers of it. Like, oh, here's a supernova. Everybody go look. Yeah. It was like – Yo, Dr. O, somebody discovered a supernova and said, look at that location. We just happened to be looking at that location last night. Should we look at that and see if it's there? And it was there. Yeah. Nice. I remember him showing it off. Yeah. yeah. This this wasn't here a couple days ago. I forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me about that. Yeah. That's the thing Uh, about science, right? You're always discovering stuff. You just forget it. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) That was exciting for me. You know, I... I wasn't used to discovering stuff, and I had a friend who did, and I was like, that's cool. I have, like, a fundamental question about astronomy here that yeah. I'd just love to get your take on. As much as I thought astronomy was interesting, yeah. I, I was never able to really do well with it because I, I there was something that bothered me about how little data we were able to get in this sense. Virtually all of these theories and understanding that we know, which is a, a tremendous amount, all comes, for the most part, just from these tiny little distant you know, light curves. Yeah, and there was there was something like unsatisfying to me yeah. about that and yeah. trying to yeah. do it. Uh, just yeah. having just having so little actual measurable capability, yeah. other than yeah. again just just what can travel from that star to our, our, yeah. our, our optical telescope. Like, yeah. d- did you ever think about that sort of thing, or was it just you know you wanted to understand these objects and and that's the tool that we have available? Yeah, I, I have thought about that a lot, in fact. Um, and, and, and when I was, uh, you know, <clears throat> about, you know, more <clears throat> uh, younger in my science, you know, I, I had that same problem because geology and paleontology and um, anthropology also, you know, like, oh, we found this one skeleton. That means, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. know we, thought, we found this one pinky joint. So clearly. Right. Yeah. We found a tooth, and so this is what the animal looks like. Like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is method to that madness, right? Because it wouldn't stand otherwise, you know. Because they're because the hate. Because come on, you know how us nerds are. Nobody's going to sit there and be like, "Yeah, John." You know, some hater is going to be like, "What? No, when you're, when you're right, they hate on you, right?" So you know they. You know, if you say something ridiculous, that, that's it. Your career is over, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but with stars, and, and, you know, this is one of the things that fascinated me when I first caught on to it. And that is, you know, and, and I don't know, remember me asking the question, where does ma- uh, light come from? Ooh. And what the answer that. is? I think I do, but I don't remember. Yeah. And the answer is matter makes it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the cool thing about that is that when matter makes light, the signature of the identity of the matter and what the matter is doing is encoded in the light, right? So when you read the light, so that's how I got my patents in uh, semiconductor physics is, you know, a lot of the processes use plasmas. So typically the way they, when you do, when you do a, so when you make a computer chip, you, you do it by laying down layers, removing stuff, laying down layers, removing stuff, laying down layers, removing stuff, right? Um, and so <clears throat> every time you lay down a layer or remove something, you have to evaluate how, if that process occurred to specification. 
And these specifications are tight because you're making things at the micron and nanometer scale, right? Uh, and the way they do that is in two ways. They put dummy wafers into a process batch that they're never really going to turn into real wafers. So if you're putting down a layer of gold, say, which happens, right? Circuitry uses gold. You put in some wafers, you just put a layer of gold on them. And then you go and you measure the gold. But in the end, you got to throw them away, right? They don't ever become chips. So you've wasted that gold, okay? The other way that you test your chips is some of the actual wafers that were at stage N of making a chip get tested to see if they're working up the spec, right? Because if, if you look at like the total making of it is say, you know, N number of dollars, you don't want to start testing at 0.9 N steps, right? You want to start at point one and point three and point five and point seven, right? So um, that also destroys those chips when you examine them. And then at the end, when they're completely done, individual chips are, are tested, right? And so those, you know, you're pressing down on their pads where they make connections so they can't be used, right? They're not going to have connectivity later. So uh, one group of my patents are in processes where instead of testing the the surfaces after you do the process you just monitor the light from the process and determine whether or not the process is in specification and if it's not in real time you can dial it into specification right in situ process diagnostics and control spectroscopic in situ spec right um and so that was me taking my skills from looking at a dot of light in the sky mm-hmm. and interpreting what's going on millions of miles away to, okay, I have a process chamber there. I can't be inside of it, but if I see the light coming out, I can tell you what the matter is doing inside of it. And, you know, <clears throat> I can dial that sucker to make it do what I, what I want to do. Um, yeah. So anyway, I told my students, always make sure you look at areas that are similar to what we're doing. But that's that's such a cool crossover thing. Okay, one other thing that I remember yeah. you uh there was some advice that you gave us which I thought was really interesting. There was a time I actually did for like one semester switch from physics to mechanical engineering as a major yeah. in college. And then I ultimately wound up switching back. But you were one of the people who was I was able to kind of seek uh, counsel from and everything. I remember what you told me was you said, "John, you know, it the, the physics degree is so valuable that if you take it and 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 really uh, kind of use your mind in the way that a physicist is supposed to, you can go later and do engineering. And yeah. the remarkable thing is you are exactly right. I actually yeah. do engineering right now, which is so yeah. cool that all these years later, your your words were, were kind of right. And that just reminds me of the story that you just told of using these techniques at looking at stars light years away and using them to help build computer chips. I, I, uh, I want to expand on that. I'm, I'm I'm a licensed engineer with a physics degree mm-hmm. and a bunch of the professors in the department used to say a, a physicist can do anything. Yeah. If you yep. get a physics degree you can do anything. Yeah. Now now don't get me wrong, sometimes my physicist qualities come out. <laughs> and it's it, <laughs> oh, yeah, and they it's do. Obvious. <laughs> like you know, we're we're just interested in the in the fundamentals, how how things really work, yeah. getting to the bottom of it. It's not enough yeah. to say this thing works, therefore it's okay. Exactly. We want to understand. You so that comes it. out. Yeah, my 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 uh manager in Silicon Valley used to say to me, "Who cares?" <laughs> it matters. 
<laughs> I'm like, look, <laughs> I can model this process. I've noticed that. <laughs> we, we, had a guy, plot. we had a guy at work who was a bridge engineer, and they used to assign him to the weird problems. Ah. He had a physics degree, and he was, the, he was the guy who could look at these weird problems and be like, oh, we can do something about this. Yeah, that's how I was thought of in 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 uh, in, in uh, my company in Silicon Valley. Give me the weird problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I did. The weird problems. But you know, that's how they looked at it, though. So they would say, like, a couple of other groups tried to recruit me. They were like, "Oh yeah, we need a physicist because we have a problem of this particular nature, and we mm. need a physicist because of how physicists think." Uh, so people got it, you know that um, you know. But for me, you know what. what the, the problem with being a physicist for me is that I get stuck pondering, hmm. you know, like something will spark in my mind from something I'm seeing or, you know, and I, I'll tell you one thing, man, it used to really mess me up mind wise. And I'm going to mess you guys up because you're here. <laughs> but here's what would mess me up so if i'm gonna go observing i gotta go online and um download images of the region of the sky we're targeting that way when we point the telescope at it and take our first image we can determine whether or not we're looking at the right spot right hmm. but when you download these images there's always going to be like background galaxies okay and one of the things that for me was really like mind blowing is when I got a sense of sizes and distances of things from the microscopic to the astronomical, you know, you could see like the universe in 3D in a way. And so, when you know, how big a galaxy really is and how far like, you know, if you know the distance to the moon and its size relative to Earth, OK, it's one quarter the Earth's size at about 60, 65 Earth radii away from the Earth, right? Mm. And you see it differently. Now you can kind of see it in 3D. When you see mm. you know, Jupiter and, and, and uh, Venus and the moon in the sky, and you see where the sun is, you can kind of now see the solar system in 3D, right? Uh, but now, in your mind, see galaxies in 3D in the universe. Hmm. Now, in and of itself, it's mind-blowing. But when you really think about galaxies, there's something about galaxies to me that in the universe that I realized just maybe like three years ago, right, in a real tangible way that every time I think about it, dude, it blows me away. And it's like the nature of the universe gas. All right. Here's what I mean by that. All right. So we're talking about sizes and distances. So let's take ourselves, right? This lovely meat that I'm made of, right? My mass is mostly in my nuclei. And those nuclei, in terms of their size, are a few hundred thousand times their own size apart from each other, 10 to the 5, right? Now, when I go to the level of stars, you know, the sun being about two light seconds across, nearest star, three light years, stars are about 10 to the 7 times their own size apart from each other. 10, 10 million, yeah. 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 10 to the 5 for nuclei, 10 to the 7 for stars. What do you think it is for galaxies? 10 to the 9. I say 10 to the 11. Yeah, okay. something big, right? Try 10 to the 1. Really? Yeah, think about it. 
The Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. The Andromeda Galaxy is 2 million light years away. That's 20 Milky Ways. They're that close. They're that close. They're very close to each other. Yeah. Yes. And now get this. The entire observable universe. If I was to stack Milky Way galaxies side by side, how many Milky Way galaxies across do you think the observable universe is, roughly? 10 to the what? 80? Like, what? I know. I'm just thinking like a couple dozen across. I was going to say 10 dozen, isn't it? A couple of dozen? I guess. Milky Way galaxies? Dude, there's two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Oh, that's a good point. That's a good point. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, hang on. What is the answer? 10 to the 6. It's only a million. Million. Okay. Yeah, that's if they're abutting each other, right? But they're not, right? So, anyway, so here is the mental experiment I did. You know how we often say that, oh, the galaxy is the building block of the universe, right? Now, in the same vein, the cell is the building block of the human body. Yes. So now imagine I'm going to shrink myself down so small that the size of a human cell to me would be like the size of a galaxy is to me now. So I'll give you the numbers. The Milky Way galaxy is about 10 to the 20 meters. The universe, observable universe, about 10 to the 26. All right. So a cell is about 100 microns or 10 to the minus four. So that means that I'll have to be like 10 to the minus four, 24 for a cell to look like a galaxy. I'm 10 to the minus 24. Right. Now, imagine if. I'm looking around at cells, individual cells, because that's how we study the universe. We look around at galaxies and I'm like, oh, look, these galaxies are kind of in a line. They form in a filament. Oh, these galaxies are kind of clustered. And we also look at individual types of galaxies. Oh, I see like some spiral galaxies or some ellipticals. And oh, there's a dwarf without dark matter. Now, imagine if you're that tiny thing and you're looking at you're inside of an elephant. You're like, oh, I see these things I call bone cells. Hmm. And I see muscle cells and blood cells and nerve cells. Oh, and look, these nerve cells are kind of in a line. Do you have any idea what an elephant is? Not really. Not really. Right. And that may be exactly how we're studying the universe, dude. We're, we're just seeing bits and pieces and... Yeah, right. We don't even we don't even know what the whole picture is. Well, yeah. I guess I guess you, the question is if if you had sufficient time, yeah. could you get a pretty darn good idea of what an elephant was from doing those? You can't. You can't because the universe is a reverse black hole. Right? So what happens is is that, you know, what you're saying is is that okay, there are things that are so distant their light has not yet had time to reach us, right? Mm-hmm. And so as time goes further, that light will reach us and I'll be able to see those things. But because of the universe's expansion, the more the, the objects that are so freaking distant, they've had so much energy sucked out of them, right? By the time they get to us, right? They've suffered gravitational uh, cosmological redshift, right? Z plus one dimming. Um, you know, so eventually things are going to be, your horizon is going to start getting smaller, not bigger. Hmm. I, I want to go back to so the universe is going to be disappearing away from you. Yeah. 
You, you said the universe is a reversing black hole. Yeah, I never heard Especially that. Especially in the early days. Yeah, that, yeah. That parts re- parts go away from you, never to be seen again. Okay. They don't so get sucked up to a singularity. They get pushed dispersed. away from a singularity. Yeah, pulled out to like some giant spherical surface. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a a big statement. Yeah, it is a big statement. Yeah, Yeah, these are kind of things I contemplate, man. You know, Um, I remember you. I had a breakthrough moment in my physics journey again in your class. I probably wrote this down and gave it to you, but um, you were going over the the evidence for the Big Bang. Yes, and you 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 gave just a little mention of the mental process for when, for example, someone will come and dispute. The, the 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 theory of the big bang right and i remember you, you just said something so simple you said if if that happens or for, not not even big bang for anything yeah. if someone disagrees the simple thing to ask is okay how so if you disagree with this specific proof yes. that we have or not a, or not a proof just evidence yeah. in what in what way absolutely and that totally framed how i now yeah. think about science and physics oh, wow. Is nice. it's not it's not just this quality it's it's not a qualitative thing it's specific yeah. bits of evidence absolutely yeah. if, and, if you if you disagree with me bring me some evidence we'll yeah. discuss it yeah well you know what man so one of the things you know you you know my classes have always been my guinea pigs and one of the things I'm I'm struck I've always struggled with with is how to uh, inform educate whatever whatever you call it right um, basically I want. I feel like it's a gift to me. I feel like it's a, you know, I'm enlightened when I begin to learn things about one nature and two science, right? Mm-hmm. They're both eye opening to me. And, and, and I want to share that, uh, you know, and so the process is really, really where people don't get it. You know, I, I think that, you know, one of the mistakes we've often made is to talk about the results of science without talking about the process of science. Um, and, and now if you get into the weeds of the process, yeah, it's boring. But if you, you know, if you give the broad strokes, because certain things are so laughable, right? Like the whole idea of there being results that are not real, like global warming, evolution, you know, old earth. I'm like, do you not know who these nerds are? You think they're going <laughs> to cooperate with a lie? You know, <laughs> When they can be the you know king nerd by just pointing out the lie, if it's a you know this, you know you know just like come on, it's it's laughable some of the uh, stuff that that people. But you know, um, I would often try to be provocative to get uh, people's attention about knowing versus not knowing. Like for example, I'd ask my students. Um, when I'm teaching like intro to astronomy, we're doing astrobiology, you know, evolution has to come up and I'll ask, I'll say, how many of you uh, believe in evolution? And, you know, Florida tech is a bit more techie than most schools. Uh, but in most places, a minority of people will raise their hand and say they believe in, 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 in evolution. Then I ask how many of you disbelieve in evolution? And the vast majority is typically how well over their hands. Now here's a provocative thing that I would say to them, I'd say, no, a hundred. Uh, I can guarantee you that a hundred percent of you believe in evolution, but you just don't know what evolution is. 
and I can prove it to you in about five minutes. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. And they'd be like, what? No, 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 no. Now you have to be, you know, you, you, you know, you have to be personality wise, be able to pull stuff like that off. Right. Yeah, definitely. You don't have a particular relationship where it can still be informal yet respectful. Right. That's the, you know, so, uh, like some people achieve respect via formality. Um, I don't like formality, <laughs> right? But we must be respectful. So, you know, my sweet spot is respectful but informal. Um, so, uh, I then go ahead and say, you know, the, the four basic things. Another one is with the Big Bang, right? I ask the students, you know, you can't do that one in five minutes, but I'll say, how many of you believe in the Big Bang? How many of you disbelieve in the Big Bang? And I do the same thing at the end of the class. And, you know, by that time they get that, you know, using the word believe was a trick question anyway, mm. right? What you believe I remember, I remember that. What you observe to be true or not true. And if you have an observation, it has an associated error and uncertainty, right? You can't just say, oh, this is what it is. No, it's that plus or minus this, homeboy, <laughs> right? That's, that's what it is. Until the better measurement is made, and then it's going to be updated, right? Yeah, I think I think you remember stuff about observe and understand being more important than believe and not believe. Yes, absolutely. But you know, if you if you look at for you know in the world realm of politics and journalism, they'll ask people all that. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Mm, like, yeah. what does it matter? You know, right. have you observed it? Like, you know, have you observed this to be true? You're telling me this. Like, you know, I, I have a, a you know one problem that we have in, in our country and every human society is politics, right? Because one thing about politics is it will make certain things unquestionable, right? And the whole thing about science is everything is questionable, right? Everything you say, you got to prove it to me, right? And it's detail. Now, imagine if somebody's coming to you and saying, oh, this country is doing something really bad, but I can't tell you how I know what I know, right? <laughs> And so we're going to have to go kill 80 million people. Are you with me or not? Vote yes for this or no for this. Like, what? Can I not know? What? <laughs> you know, I can't know unless I know. Right? Really? But, uh, you know, that, now imagine you're, you're the average Joe, right? One thing about being trained in physics is that you're trained in the subtlety of knowing because the stuff we're studying is so freaking subtle. And, and you can get tricked, right? You can you can be measuring your own instruments. <laughs> you're, mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can be measuring the guy next door if you're not careful. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, once you're trained in knowledge versus belief, critical thought, and, and these sort of things, it, it, it makes you a weirdo in the world, right? You might find yourself burned at the stake or something. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> You, you just made me harken back to a memory of being in a my grad student lab. One of my fellow grad students, he made an interferometer. Uh-huh. <laughs> just what, like what you were saying of uh, measurement error and measuring things that you're not intending to. It would be like, 
oh shoot, somebody just walked by in the hallway and we just picked it up. <laughs> oh man. And 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 it, and uh, the noise drowned out our measurement. It was like oh, he was looking for gravitational waves. He, he was not. And, uh, ironically, it, it was uh, in Louisiana as well. <laughs> oh okay. <laughs> but um, John, it's so cool you went to LSU, man. You know I'm from New Orleans. It actually was Tulane. Tulane. Oh Tulane, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The other the other one. Um, it, it was it was really awesome. Loved, yeah. loved it there. You know, that's my uh, childhood. I was born in East New Orleans. East New Orleans. New Orleans oh, man. East. So if you go like uh so if you look at the map of New Orleans, right? East New Orleans is where like you have the ninth ward and then there's yeah. like the industrial canal you cross across and there's that little strip there along mm-hmm. the river. Yep. It's old school. It's 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 ancient. Well, it was destroyed in Katrina. So I was going to say that that yeah. area got hit so hard. I think that was where the barge like went over the levee yeah. and broke out. I mean, that was just a disaster. Man, oh, I goodness. went there uh after Katrina. It was like the the following spring. Yeah. And I had, you know, it's home for me. So I sort of have a ritual. Stop and pick up the food first and then head to mama's house or daddy's house, right? Yep. Uh and so man, I don't know what I so I'm thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Bruh. It was the creepiest, weirdest thing in the world. Because the second I hit New I came from the east, Lake Pontchartrain, I-10, and there was no humans. Square mile after square mile. I exited at Crowder, where I normally exit. And no humans go up to chef where, you know, we never close <laughs> was no humans. It oh, was, man, it weirded me out. And I was like, man, you know, I, I just thought about my mother and my sister. They're more emotional. My sister came sometime after she like broke down emotionally. It was tough. That, and you know, it's funny. I didn't go there until 2013, several years oh, after yeah. Katrina, and so I actually feel like I was there during a pretty good time because it was oh, yeah. after kind of that initial shock. And so it was kind of yeah. in a rebuilding phase. And that's where yeah. you want to be. You want to be somewhere yeah. when they're really rebuilding and getting yeah. and, and, you know, there's there's development there and, and new things are coming on. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. still, like the scars were just everywhere. There were still abandoned houses, right. aban- abandoned houses, like yeah. eight yeah. years later. Yeah. <laughs> where, now, I was still going there uh, annually all the way through at least 2018. That's when my family moved away. So I'm like, oh, you ruined it oh. for me. Well, well, that actually brings us up. Just we just wanted to bring it up. So you actually just recently released a book, right? About in June 15th, it's released. Ah, oh, so, okay. so it's coming out soon. Coming out soon. It's already available for pre-order. That's right. Oh, okay. Yeah, because because the book is partially about kind of how how you got to where you are, right? It, that's exactly what it's about. It's called A Quantum Life: My Unlikely Journey from the Street to the Stars. Ah. I remember in class you used to talk about growing up on the street some. Oh you know, man, I, <laughs> how, how do you how do you get from the street to the stars? Uh, well, one element of it is a lot of luck. Uh, in my case, uh, another element of it is a lot of help. And, you know, one part of my luck was, you know, I just happened to be a nerd, you know. And uh, the other thing was, you know, I was I was alone a lot as a kid and I just happened to bond with books. Um, and so I, I I also was like interested in weird stuff, you know, so. You know, I was always trying to re- read, you know, ghostly stuff, Loch Ness Monster stuff, comics, mythology, all that kind of stuff, right? So at the age of 10, 
I was reading our encyclopedias and I discovered Albert Einstein and relativity. And that dude was like, oh my God, this is, you know, it's like all that other weird stuff, but real, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I must learn. I must understand relativity. And so I just became Mr. Obsessed with Relativity guy at age 10, you know, but this is before the internet. So it was much more difficult. Um, you know, remember, and talk to everybody being, about Einstein, and people thought it was the funniest thing. They started calling me Einstein. You know, I remember as a ten-year-old, nobody, I, nobody was into relativity. Now, let me tell you though, back, like you gotta like, like the other thing I, I often was doing in my classes was trying to, you know, America is like ninety million little tiny slices of culture, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've always wanted to share, like, try to give you the visual of these places and these people, right? So imagine me in 1970s, right? It's an all-black segregated world. They're wearing Afros. Dudes are wearing vests and, you know, and, and three-piece suits. Is I don't know if you've ever watched old movies, but imagine that scene, right? That, you know, that, you know, the music is playing and, and the little kid is about Albert Einstein, <laughs> Walking, you know, and I was weird as hell to everybody too because you know I've always been into jokes and humor, and so the problem was was a lot of the humor at when I was a young kid, the seventies was you know Eddie Murphy did the Rudy Ray Moore movie, but people didn't know about Rudy Ray Moore before he did, but he but he took a lot of these old school rhymey jokes. But anyway, long story short, I was memorizing. Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, as well as like Welcome Back Cotter and stuff like that. And so I'm like a little, you know, kid talking trash, telling jokes, talking about Einstein, right? And, you know, everybody hates Chris environment, you know what I mean? <laughs> Only the South, not New York, right? You know, so it was a weird, really weird, you know, crazy set of circumstances, man. Interesting. Yeah, it was really, really. Was that New Orleans or Mississippi? All of the above. So I moved every year until I was uh, 13, like a month before my 13th birthday. Um, so I spent a decade. Um, my parents divorced when I was four. And um, my mom is an interesting person. <laughs> And man, I don't know, you know, she always described it as she said, her quote is, I'm a mover. I've always been a mover. And so that meant that I never attended the same, I never lived in the same state two years in a row, right? And there was this one period right before it all ended. There was a 16, 11-month period. No, a 16-month period starting at age 11 where I lived in nine different high schools, excuse me, nine different households and attended five different schools in three different states in 16 months. Wow. Yeah. And that is only counting the households I was in for more than two weeks. If you add, it was like three or four more, right? That I was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a crazy scene. I was like, the other thing, you know, and I didn't talk about this then, but it's in my book, you know, I was crazy abused. I was crazy. Like, uh, not, I wouldn't say crazy, you know, because it wasn't an everyday thing, you know, and it wasn't, but, you know, there was a lot of beating and uh, a lot of mentally and emotional type of uh, abuse. You know, I was never sexually abused. There were a lot of people that tried, but I escaped every time. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's not funny. But I'm laughing because I remember this one guy, you know, it got to a certain point and I realized what was going on. 
and I punched him in a sensitive area and ran away. Right, I was seven years old. Uh, yeah, did, did that's why that? I never forgot it. I was like, it was shocking, <laughs> you know, when it took a turn. Wow, <laughs> you know, it was did shocking. You? I was like, oh no, what do I do? Bow about. <laughs> <laughs> did you get so into books because you moved so much you never really yeah. had friends that you could get to know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other thing is, is that it's not just that I, you know, I didn't have friends. I didn't, you know, when you're the new kid in the, those types of neighborhoods, you know, they were impoverished African-American neighborhoods. Um, and the biggest uh, poverty I'd say is poverty of dignity, right? So there's a, you have a larger percentage of guys who get there, I'm, you know, valuable in the world through being tough, right? Being bad. That's, that's what, you know, that's what you have as your uh, model in, in many cases, right? Because if you look at the, 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 the models of who gets respect, who gets this, you know, the, the hierarchy in, in the community, right? You see what kind of guys are, the tough guys are, you know, so, um, you know, I had to fight, man. I had to fight a lot. Uh, every community, every community. Dude, I was, I, I remember asking my son, who's now 15, uh, he was like 14. I was like, how many fights have you had? He was like, <laughs> none. I was like, none. Like, man, I had had a thousand fights by the time I was 14. And, you know, I actually had to, you know, self-therapy myself. <laughs> Because I was in such a defensive posture, you know, I was in such a tough world by, you know, I was living in fear and, you know, and, and so because of fear, you had to be tougher than the next person. Right. So I was ready to punch you in the face at the drop of a dime. You know, it was like I had to keep you up off me, you know, uh, and, and, and literally, you know, it was it took me, you know, I was a very old adult, my like my late 20s before you know, internally, I I felt, oh, it's easy. You know, it's it's okay to be a nice guy, the nice guy that you actually are. You know, it's okay. You know, and you're such a nice guy. That's yeah, why it's nice so guy. funny. But I was in a tough world, man. And so I look at those pictures of me as a young kid sometimes, and it almost brings tears to my eyes. You know, to know what that guy thought of himself because of the how the world treated him. You know, I was like, oh, you poor kid. You know, I just want to give you a hug, dude. <laughs> but you know, I'm like, you know, I ended up. The way I ended up, so I'm like, would I change anything? No, I wouldn't because, you know, easy doesn't mean better, you know, or, or no tough times doesn't equal necessarily, you know, all's well and it ends well, right? That's the. <laughs> and you, you've mentioned that your schooling was tough at times too. I mean, especially when you, you know, got to graduate school. And- oh, man. Well, you know, graduate school and college, everything. Once I left high school, it just illustrated, you know, the issue in every country and every state is that the quality of education varies drastically from place to place. And the biggest impact, I think, is not the school quality, but the education level of the parents. Right. So neither of my parents graduated high school. So like that son I was talking to you about when he was like four or something, my mom was like, Oh, I think he's smarter than you. And I was like, no, the hell he ain't. <laughs> My dad dropped out of school when he was nine years old. His dad got a PhD. I'm not, I don't, you know, <laughs> you can't make that comparison. I don't, you know, if I could read by 12, I was doing good. <laughs> Cause my dad couldn't, right. He couldn't read at 12, couldn't read at 20. <laughs> so, uh, 
Yeah, man, it was it was it was what was really tough is overcoming the lack of education. And if when you have a lack of education, you don't really know you have a lack of education until, you know, it's brought forward. But because of the nature of class and hierarchy that exists, you expect a certain amount of, oh, they those people over there have more, no more, you know, so when I left Mississippi, you know, and, and did my first physics research at Berkeley and my roommate had lived in China, you know, could speak three languages and, you know, and they were turn, you know, they were like, oh, you never seen an artichoke? I'm like, no, let's eat artichoke. Oh, you never seen Thai food? No, let's have to, right? You know, that was, that. you know, you, you have an expectation that it's like that. I don't think, oh, I'm deficient in any way. You know, it, it's just like, oh, that's just the way the world is. Those people have that. And, and I, you know, but then I came to realize that no, it's an injustice that it's like that, right? Differences should exist, but the, the education, you know, what we consider to be fundamental education is at such is at too low of a level, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll give an example. In mathematics, what's the fundamental level of education that everybody knows, every adult American knows? Arithmetic, Arithmetic. and a little algebra algebra? That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. I would say I would be more specific about it. What you call arithmetic, I would say how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide and multiply yeah. the digit zero through nine, maybe zero through twelve. Right? I agree. Add, subtract, yep. multiply, divide, everything that has to do with those, you know, that standard thing that we're all drilled in drilled into us for till yep. we're like what? 11, 12, till we're introduced to algebra in middle school or high school, right? What should be the minimum level of mathematics education for every person? For every person? Yeah, like like the, 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 what, what we just described as yeah. the minimum, what should be the minimum? What should be added to that that everybody should know? I mean, that's philosophical. I mean, it ain't simple. it's practical. Yeah. It's practical. I have I an mean, advantage that you don't have because I've been a professor and I had year after year after year after year after year after year after student. And I know what they need and all, always don't have. <laughs> so, I mean, for your for your classes, we needed calculus, but we were also, you know, physicists. Right. You were physicists. Yeah. In college, you know. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, people like talking about, oh, you have to have the ability to do basic expected things like do your taxes. You know, that that requires. That's, a, that's basic arithmetic. That's what we just described. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond that. What is it beyond that? OK, let me change it. Right. So beyond that, the world of math beyond that, you know what you call that world? STEM. Hmm. That's what you call that world. That's the world. That's where mathematics lives, where the mathematics is not counting. <laughs> Right. And you know what that mathematics involves mostly? It involves two things that we learned how to use that change the world. Okay. One of them is the equal sign, and the other is the number one. And here's how they manifest themselves. Okay. The equal sign. When. You are learning algebra. This is what they do. They give you a gray box or a blank space. And they'll say gray box plus three equals five. Mm -hmm. What number goes in the gray box? Two. Two, right? Then later, they change the gray box or, you know, 
and they put X there and they say X plus three equals five. What number is X? It's two again. It's two, right? Now, do you remember me asking you this question in class? What is math about? In one word, what is math about? In one word. Ask a million people. One word, what is math about? What's the most common answer by far? Numbers? Numbers, absolutely. Math, and that's what we describe when we say the basic knowledge everybody has. Add, subtract, multiply the digits 0 to 12 about, right? That's number math. I had a class with you. We did a lot of math, but not many numbers. Not many numbers, right? That's not STEM math. <laughs> a lot of letters. <laughs> a lot of letters, exactly. And great. And sure. when you have an equation that's X plus three equals five, what do we call that? It's algebra. No, it? no, it is. But what do we call an equation like that? Oh. You know what we call an equation like that? Solved. Yes. Yeah, yeah there, there's a simple you end solution. Up with x equals number at the end, right? Yeah. So the power of the equal sign is I can think about a situation and write down some equations. There's this thing I want to know that I don't know. After I manipulate those equations, I end up with thing I want to know equals boom, right? That process is called solving equations. Mm -hmm. That is the basis of all STEM. Now, to solve equations, there are certain steps you need to know that nobody knows. But everybody knows. Everybody knows them, but nobody knows them. Let me give you an example. Yeah. If I walked up to a person on the street and I said, what's 2x squared y cubed z plus 3x cubed y cubed z? What do you think they're going to say? They're going to get the hell out of my face, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Crazy. If I walk up to that same person and I say, what's two tigers plus three tigers? What are they going to say? Five tigers. Five tigers. Exactly. Now, let me ask you the first question again. What's 2x cubed y, x squared y cubed z plus 3x squared y cubed z? Five tigers? Five X squared Y cubed Z, right? So oh, yeah. here's what uh, I mean by that. Here's what you're not taught in school. Here's here's where school goes wrong, right? When you're teaching a person mathematics for the first time, you start off by teaching them how to count. Mm-hmm. And you then teach them how to add. And typically... When you teach them how to add, you use objects to help. You'll give them blocks. Little Mary, here's three blocks. And little Mary, here's two blocks. If I have three blocks and give you two blocks, how many blocks do you have? Mary counts all the blocks. Got five blocks. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Then you move the pen and paper. Apples. Little Mary, three apples plus two apples. You got five apples, right? Count the little pictures of apples. Then the next step you do is you take the apples away. And you say, little Mary, what's two plus three? She goes, five. I'm ready for abstract math. I'm ready to go. And that's where you went wrong, Hmm. right? And the reason why that's where you went wrong is because the math that you teach people in historically has been number math. But because of STEM, the math that is dominant is what is known as kind of thing math. 
Now, there's a third type of math, which is direction math. You've never heard it put like that before, have you? Nope. No, you haven't, right? Because we don't do mathematics with numbers. We do mathematics with terms, right? And each term has three parts to it. It has a number part that comes at the very beginning of it. Mm -hmm. It has a kind of thing part, which is everything else almost. And then it has a direction part that nobody ever really talks about. You kind of got to figure it out for yourself, right? When you first start learning math, you do it in this one-dimensional space. So the direction part is called positive and negative. But once you go advanced, you have plus or minus X, plus or minus Y, plus or minus Z, plus or minus X and I. Well, I plus one, I plus two, I plus, right? And so when you realize that the plus or minus sign is a part of the direction and not a part of the number of the kind of thing, it's like, ah, now it makes more sense. So let's get to that kind of thing part. If I know that the construction of a number is number part plus kind of thing part, it doesn't matter what the kind of thing is. So I say, what's two squares plus three squares? You say five squares. Five squares. What's two refrigerators plus three refrigerators? Five refrigerators. What's 2x squared y cubed z over 78,555 plus 3x squared y cubed z over 78,055, right? It's like 5x squared y cubed z over 78,055, right? Everything that follows the number is the kind of thing, right? It doesn't matter if it's a tiger, a shoe, or whatever, right? Now, there's another kind of thing. There are three different kind of things. One kind of thing is everything that follows the number. Another kind of thing we call the denominator. So let me give an example. Here's how you teach math. Remember two blocks plus three blocks is five blocks. Two apples plus three apples is five apples. Two refrigerators plus three refrigerators is five refrigerators. Two lions plus eight turtles is. Two lions plus eight turtles. Yeah. It's a group of animals. You got to do the same. You have to, they have to be the same kind of thing to add them or subtract them. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So now let me give you, let me tell you how they say that in math. If I give you two fractions to add them or subtract them, you have to find the least common denominator. Yeah. So a denominator is a kind of thing. If I tell you that in order to add two things together, they have to be the same kind of thing. Right. So if I say the denominator is a kind of thing, the denominator is eighth. So it's an eighth. What's two eighths plus three eighths? Five eighths. Five eighths. Right. Okay. Another kind of thing is what we call a variable, right? X. Two X plus three X is what? Five X. Just like two alligators plus three alligators, five alligators, right? But that's not how people think of it. Because when you tell them X plus two equals five and they go, oh, X is three. When they see X in the equation, they're thinking, oh, what number is X? Right? right. They don't realize that X is X. Don't, the X does not become a number until the very last step. In every other step, all variable expressions behave like a kind of thing. Okay, so it, it could have been a refrigerator, but it's an X. And it's, not, it's worse than an X. It's an X squared Y cubed Z to the fifth over parentheses X cubed plus 3XY plus Y cubed, close parentheses, all to the power 3 A's, right? It doesn't matter what it is. 
my my pre-calc teacher taught us some stuff and he, he brought in cows one time as the variable like and we, we all went actual cows no 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 oh. <laughs> it was it was like two cows plus three cows equals, yeah and we were just like you can't do that you can't do like, that i had a like, kid tell me that once yeah. too. you can't he was like that. why why can't i do that it's yeah. it's it's a cow like there's a picture of a cow on the board like it's a thing there, no x is special <laughs> i can add i can add cows you know x is x is something yeah man so we don't learn uh kind of thing math um properly and so you know the power of one is in the power of uh changing variables when you do number math the reason why you don't write down the kind of thing is because everything is the same kind of thing when you're doing number math right they're mm-hmm. all dollars uh they're all bales of hay or whatever right uh but in the world of stem Things have to go from being one kind of thing to being another kind of thing, right? So remember my old question, how do you turn a giraffe into a milkshake? Multiply it by milkshake over giraffe. Oh, man. Right? So it's the number part. So here's what typically happens in the student's mind. You tell them there are 10 millimeters in a centimeter. Here's five centimeters. How many millimeters is that? They say multiply it by 10, 50. Right. Right? Then you say, okay. There are 10 millimeters in one centimeter. Here are five cubic centimeters. How many cubic millimeters is that? And they say, oh, multiply it by 10, right? Because they're only thinking of the number part. They're not thinking the kind of thing part. If I need to change a centimeter cube to a millimeter cube, I need to multiply it by millimeter cubed over centimeter cubed. If I need to change a centimeter cubed into a starfish, I multiply by starfish over centimeter cube, right? You got to get that kind of thing math in there. And then it all becomes bling, bling. And the same thing goes with physics, man. The same thing, the way we teach physics, F equals MA, give me a break. That should have never been there. Yeah, you wouldn't let us use that in class. Yeah, that should never, that should never happen. Who let that happen? That should be like a, by the way, also, you could think of it this way. Yeah, because there's something fundamental about the laws of physics and the way they're written. The laws of physics are all about time. Have you noticed that? Yeah. They come in two types. One type is you use the mathematics of change, calculus. I can write down how one thing changes with another thing, right? I know that the quantity of motion changes with a net force, right? I know that the... um the angular momentum changes when there's a net torque. Mm-hmm. I know that the evolution of the wave function is when the Hamiltonian is acting on it, right? The change in this thing is equal to something on that side. Then there is, okay, things ain't changing. It don't show up in the Lagrangian. It ain't, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's not changing in time, right? <clears throat> so the laws of physics are written down in the language of time. Um, and so the other thing about the laws of motion is that motion occurs in two types, straight line and, 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 and curve circular motion. And all motion is a combination of those two types. But we focus so much only on one of them, straight line motion, right? We don't focus so much on the uh, curvilinear motion. Um, but there's something fundamentally different about the two of them, right? If you think about it, if you have a spinning object, that object is accelerating. 
Okay, so right. you know there is no reference frame in the universe. So if you have a single object in the universe, there is no up, there is no down, there is no motion, right? But if it starts to spin, it is there is motion. There are preferred directions, right? If it happens to be a cylinder of water, you get a meniscus shape, hmm. right? So curvilinear motion, if you want to understand the fundamental nature of space-time, right, then, then taking things into account like curvilinear motion, the existence of inertia, you know, the, the, the flow of space-time in general relativity, right? These are the things you think about. Um, but you, you, you kind of sort of have to untrain your mind from physics without calculus to <laughs> real physics in your, like, your junior, senior year of undergrad. And that's why junior, senior year of physics is so damn hard because you're taught wrong from the start and you have to switch it up. And, 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 and think about it the right way, you know, um, if you ever get that opportunity, you know, you may never get that opportunity. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> it's it's funny because you actually taught me physics one, if you remember. Yeah. And now there's and I remember you taught physics one in a way that I think was a little unorthodox compared to the way most students learn, because yeah. it was it was full of just exercises, some mental and some uh, yeah. with, with problem solving like this. And it actually was extremely helpful because then when I came to those junior year heavy hitting courses, I was like, okay, at, at least I've heard this language. At least I've heard, right. I, I've, I've gone through some of this logic. Yeah. It was actually incredibly helpful. Um, I think that physics one insults the intelligence of the student. I, or, or is it the case that physics teaching has historically been so bad that they're just like, you know, the textbook makers and the professors are like, oh my God, let me help these fools. Uh, <laughs> take it slow. Let me do it one step at a time. It's not the students; it's the teachers. Uh, because I tell you why. You know, giving you oh, here are the equations of constant velocity. Here are the equations of constant acceleration, and not saying oh, here is how motion works. And mathematically, once I put the entire thing together, you know, it was kind of like how come they didn't teach it like this? You know, this is. It took me. You know, I had a PhD by the time I was like, what really? <laughs> You know, like all this time. <laughs> yeah. And I also think that a lot of colleges, uh, a lot of like the substance of doing well in college is just training yourself to do well on a test. And and specifically for math and physics, it's to do well on certain problems that you can practice. And so I think yeah. necessarily when you when you put yourself in a box like that, what is what is a problem in a, in a particular form such that I can go make 30 variants of it that are all similar you take you you do all 30 and then you'll know how to do the next 30 um man i I, I, I just know that's that's the way a lot of students approach it right but you know i I think the other problem i think the reason why it's that way is because you have so little experience with it by the time you get to it you know i think that you should be doing the type of things you're doing in college way earlier in life i don't think that uh I, i and i think that you know, it, it's like I, I give, you know, education is a really, really tough thing to do. It's a really, really tough thing to do in the way that we've tried to do it historically. And that is taking a group of people and all teaching you the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Because people are so individual in their learning, you know. Um, and the problem is made worse when, uh, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, when I was in the military, the military's ways of teaching 
kind of taught a group of people the same thing at the same time, you know. It, it, it seemed to be better at it than academia is. Um, but at the same time, you know, there was a lot less thinking involved. It was more like practice, 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 skill. You know, new skill, master new skill. It's all about skill mastery. And, and then on to the next one. And, and then, then on yeah. to the next one, exactly. But you always do that one, right? But it's drilling, drilling, skill, skill, skill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, whereas with what we're doing, it seems like this, the drilling of skill is sort of uh, not really, it's, it's almost like we got to get so much in so fast, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> but we're doing it in such a way that it's so inefficient. I think that the efficiency of the process, if you start the process way early, if you start preparing the mind for algebraic thought at the very beginning of mathematics education, right? If you can do two tigers plus three tigers, when you start doing math, you can do two X plus three X, right? It's just how you frame it, you know? Hmm. Um, and they're not asking it of, of you. And when you realize that 2x plus 3x is 5x, when you add the same thing together, you just add those numbers and put it in front mm-hmm. on the left, it's a minor step to say when I multiply x squared by x cubed, you get x to the fifth. Hmm. I guarantee you that stop a stranger on the street thing again, you stop strangers on the street, you ask what's 2 plus 3, you're going to get 5 roughly 100% of the time. Right. You ask what's x squared by x cubed, Multiply by x cubed. If you get x to the fifth, probably fifty percent of the time, if you're doing well, right? You think the average person knows the answer to that? I, I, I thought it would be I, way less than fifty percent. I know. Yeah, I'm being generous. I'm trying to. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not because it's beyond their capacity to know. That's not yeah. the problem. It's just right? they never, never needed to know it. Never learned it. Well, is it, that it wasn't framed right to them when it because it's so easy and straightforward yeah. that if it was introduced early in the same way that two plus three is. It would become a part of your natural thought. You'd have done it five times by the time you got to ninth grade, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, rather than, oh, now that you're in ninth grade, let me introduce you to something new. You know, yeah. the letter X. You know, it, it's it's it, it's it's ridiculous. I think it's it's uh, you know, let me let me experiment with your kids. That's what I'm saying. When you have kids. Send them to me and let me experiment with them. And- well, <laughs> one other thing we wanted to get your take on, more yeah. of like a current event type of thing. Yeah. I saw, I saw there was some discussion going on with you regarding the uh, the James Webb Space, Ta- Space Telescope. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts there? Man, it's not the telescope itself. It's the man, James Webb. Mm. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what happened. It was really something that started off. It, it was like a great mystery, murder mystery type thing, but it wasn't a murder mystery. Um, so 2015, I'm working at MIT, and I see this story, and the headline is incredibly provocative. It says something like, "Should NASA? Oh, the problem with naming observatories for bigots." And I'm like, okay, what is that about, right? So I look at it. Now, every astronomer knows about the James Webb Space Telescope because it's the follow-up to Hubble, you know, good or bad, when it, you know, its it's scientific capability is going to take things to the next level, okay? Um, The reason why there's controversy had to do primarily with it being over budget and over schedule, right? 
The other bit of controversy was that James Webb was not a scientist, so having a major flagship observatory named after a NASA administrator was kind of unorthodox, right? Hmm. So anyway, I read the article, and it it says that, well, you know, James Webb started his gig at NASA in 1961. But before that, in 1949, he worked for the State Department. And before that, he worked for the Bureau of Budget. But while he was at the State Department, he was an actively homophobic man who led witch hunts against gay federal employees and kicked them out of the federal government. Whoa. So I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is this, horrific, right? This, this is like a, this is a known fact. This, this happened. Well, this is, I read this article, Forbes.com, right? Uh huh. So I want to know exactly what you want to know. So I Google it and I see another article and this article has the title, uh, should, NASA name a telescope after a dead guy who persecuted gays in the 1950s uh, by this guy, Dan Savage, in the Seattle newspaper. And so I'm just like, oh, no. And then it's there's a quote allegedly by Jay, by, by Webb that is horrible. All right. It's terrible about, uh, you know, saying something about the gay people are different from regular people or normal people, something, you know, just terrible stuff. Right. So. I'm just like, dang, this is terrible. What else is there? Because it's all like secondhand, right? And so I Google it. I don't see anything. So at the time, there was a Facebook group um, that was about people in the world of astronomy who cared about diversity and inclusion type uh, concerns, right? So I go and I look in there and I do a search on Webb's name to see if I see anything. And turns out that they had already been talking about it, okay? So, they, you know, for five months, they had been talking about it. It looks like it was real. So I'm like, okay, that sucks. And I let it go. A year and a half later, I find myself at NASA, right? I go in an IPA position. And as I'm going through my position, after in the six months getting the lay of the land, I see who's in charge of technical excuse me, strategic communications. And I approached this person, an executive. And I'm like, what's up with this? And they're like, oh my God, I didn't know about this. Hmm. What else is there? And I showed them and they're like, okay, I think we need to talk to this other high level person about this and see what they say about this, what we should do, because this is serious. And I take it to that other person. The two of us go talk to that other person. And the other person's like, yes, this is serious. Um, but I don't really see here what actually happened. Uh, Hakeem, do you know what actually happened or is it just these allegations? I was like, as far as I know, it's only the allegations. They're like, okay, if it's only allegations until we see what the truth is, there's nothing that we can do or say. We, We have to base it on truth, not rumor. Okay. So at that point I decide I'm going to investigate. I'm, you know, I'm curious do, now. And, and do some it, science on it. Huh? Do some science on it. Yeah, let's do some science on it, right? So I start investigating, and I start with those articles. And one article refers, uses his, his Wikipedia article as a reference. So I go to the Wikipedia article, and sure enough, it says, oh, this particular undersecretary of state said this particular thing in, con- in Congress, kicked off this event known as the Lavender Scare. But it did not have a reference, right? So I'm like, okay, let me see if James Webb was the was the Undersecretary of State at the time. 
Turns out he was. I'm like, oh, wow. Well, it looks like he did it, right? And said the undersecretary, all right? So it said he made this particular statement in Congress. Let me see if I can find where he did that. So I started looking up everything I could find historical on James Webb. Couldn't find it. And I tell this executive about that, and this executive says, well, you know NASA has historians and librarians. Have you talked to them? And I was like, oh, thank you very much. So I go talk to them. Again, they're just like, holy cow, this is not the James Webb we know. And they start sharing stuff with me about other stuff. And then they put me in contact with a guy who's completing his dissertation in Huntsville, Alabama, in history on James Webb, right? Mm. This guy and me have some... Right. Right? And what I get out of all this is all these different sources. So I just start going through sources, going through sources, going through sources. And nothing on James Webb actually pays off. Right? And then I'm like, okay, this was done under security in the State Department. Let me look at the history of security in the State Department. And then, boom, it all come, it starts coming. And it turns out that the actions that were being attributed to James Webb were not, they were done, but they were done by these guys named Purify and Humosign, Carlisle Humosign and John Purifoy, right? Um, and so what I do is I'm like, okay, let me see how this event actually took place. And I wrote all that out and I said, let me see what Webb was actually doing. And I wrote out not all of that because there's books on it, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm not going to write, you know, it's already too damn long saying how this thing was done. I can't write what Webb was actually doing at that time. Right. Um, And then, uh, you know, I I put out this article about it. Okay. And there was one piece of paper that did tie Webb to the events and this memo. What happened is Truman knew Webb when he was in the Bureau of Budget. And so when he became president and he was building his State Department, he asked Webb personally to come in because what had been happening is is that there had been a spy affair. I forget the name of it. that kicked off all of this like communism spy stuff, okay? And so um, they needed to reorganize the State Department uh, and they needed to establish America's new um, foreign policy in light of communism's rise, right? Okay. And so that's what Truman wanted Webb to do. So Webb joins in 1949. This effort to remove gays from government starts in 1947. In January of 1950, McCarthy is the person that's doing the security spy stuff, right? And he wants to get he wants to get communists out. So John Purify is testifying before the Senate and they asked him, have you guys kicked anybody out because of the loyalty program? And they were like, yeah, we kicked out 91 people in the last, you know, since 1947 or whatever. And they pressed Purifoy. So Purifoy and the Senate had always had this uh, relationship where the Senate was trying to get information for Purifoy and Purifoy wasn't giving it. All right. Just like government does. No, I'm not giving you no information. You know, whatever. Send me, right. knock, you know, take me to court. And so um, Purifoy finally gives it up that actually it wasn't communists that were kicked out. It was people that were considered security risk because they were gay. And because mm. society was ho- so homophobic at the time, of course, they had to keep their gayness a secret. So they were thought to be a security risk. Right. 
Um, so once Purifoy brings this up, the Republicans make a big deal out of it. And so the Democrats, too, make a big deal out of it. So the Senate gets on board. At first, it was two senators, Will and, and Wary and Hill, who started this thing that recruited Purifoy. Now all the Senate starts doing this. So by the age, end of 1950, they have taken up the issue of homosexuals in government as something that we need to get to the bottom of, right? And figure out, is this a security risk? And if it is, what should we do about it, all right? And so there needed to be a negotiation to get the Senate, Congress, and the White House to share information. They had to agree on the terms of the uh, hearings. Were they going to be public or not public? Who was going to testify? This, that, and the other, right? So Truman personally asks Webb to go to Hoey, the Senate that was going to run this investigative subcommittee, and negotiate with him how the hearings would take place. And there are documents that say what happened in these meetings. When Webb has his meeting with Hoey, it's mostly about whether or not they're going to be public. And so that's what I write. I say that there's only one thing that that connects Webb to this, and that is this little negotiation here. But if you look at the documents, one of the elements is all communications and all actions will be done with the deputy undersecretary, who was Carlisle Humelsign. Webb and the secretary, Atchison, would not be involved. So the one area where Webb could have been involved, he wrote himself out of being involved. So we don't know what his character was. I don't know the guy. He could have been going around the Senate every day. I hate these people. Or he could have been going around every day. Why are they doing that to these people? We don't know. That's the whole point. There's no evidence. And the thing is, is that what I did not know when I wrote the article is that there was a political movement in astronomy against Webb, blaming him for this. So what they have done is they've now made a blog, blog article and a Scientific American article where they take that uh, Humelsign memo and they change it, right? So they there is a logic technique called Bailey and Mott, where if there's something difficult to argue against, you argue against something easier instead. So they started from a place of Webb was an actively homophobic man who persecuted gay people and led the Lavender Scare to he was aware of it and complicit because he was in a leadership position. So there was something he could have done. But think about it. What is the last Senate investigation that we know about? Uh, Not counting presidential uh, impeachments. What's the last big Senate subcommittee investigation? You remember? Benghazi. Okay. Remember Benghazi? Man, I I don't watch the news enough. Oh, my goodness. All right. You don't remember. That was like 2014 or something? Yeah. So imagine this. Imagine the Senate is being investigated by, excuse me, the State Department, which is a part of the executive branch, Mm -hmm. is being investigated by the Senate whose job it is to oversee the executive branch. And they say, give me all your papers on this topic. So Webb hasn't been involved with this. Purify and Humosign have been doing this. And they give them all of their 
hateful documents about gay people and what they've been doing. And Webb's job is to deliver it to Hoey and to negotiate how the the, the, the hearings are going to go. He's going to like, here's the information that state is giving you, Senate. And here's our negotiation, how it's going to go. Imagine Benghazi. How could the second person at the State Department do anything to change what those senators were going to do in that hearing? Can you imagine them shutting a uh, uh, Senate? Oh, yes, I'm in, I'm in the State Department. You're a senator. Your job is to oversee me, but I'm not going to allow you to do it. Is that possible that, uh, that you know of? Does that exist? That, the Senate, not, has, the Senate is strong-willed and has a lot of power. Yeah, it, that doesn't exist, yeah. right? right? So they, so they, you know, so I don't want to say they're lying, if, but they're reading the history way different than what I'm reading it, right? This guy is basically dragged into this, and then he writes himself out of it, and so he's not. We know who the bad people are in this. It's Wary and Hill in the Senate, and it's Purify and Humelsign in the uh, in the State Department, and then once the Hoy Subcommittee takes off, right? Hoy's now a bad guy and the people that go along with that. But Webb never does get involved with this. So why are they forcing that on him? So that is the the big controversy. So I, so I published it in January, I think. So read the article. Um, and there was a big, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing that really was good to me um, that, that gave me a sense of, of fulfillment were the people who responded by saying something about Webb's family, right? Mm. Because, you know, I try to look at this from all angles, you know, and I try to look at myself. I was like, okay, let me look at this situation as if it was me. Imagine there's a statue of Robert E. Lee, right? Back when I lived in the segregated world of Mississippi, he's in my hometown. And every time I'm hearing his name and seeing this guy, I'm just like, ah, ah, why does my country treat me this way? But there's this white dude who's down with the brown. So let's say his name is John Robertson, right? And he sees how this is affecting me, right? He's my friend. He's like, damn, that's, I don't like that. Let me see what the deal is with this guy because you know what? Akeem hates him. It's making me hate him. But I don't want to hate this dude without actually knowing. So let me find out the real deal about it. And he finds out and he finds out it actually isn't true. And he comes to me. He's like, I can't do. Guess what? I learned that not only was this guy not the Civil War guy. He actually freed Japanese who were interred in World War Two. He was kind of a hero because it turned out that James Webb was a hero of the civil rights era. Right. Hmm. Would I be eager to stop hating that guy? That statue. That would be a real emotional flip, right? That would be a difficult thing to do. I say it's so ingrained in you. It's so ingrained. So I'm trying to take that understanding and not answer those people at all. But the Scientific American article just came out. So that's the one that kind of got me like, oh, man, why did they double down in propagating false information to make their point? If you have a political point, I, I don't have one. Right. For me, it was a point of fact. And for me, it was a point of, oh, my God, thank God he wasn't a horrible person. Right. Um, and I thought about the, the the queer community. Right. I was like, you guys don't have to go through the suffering of every time you hear this guy's name. You because, you, you know, James Webb's face telescope is everywhere in astronomy. 
you mm-hmm. have to go through those awful feelings of this guy was that kind of guy, right? Um, but I didn't realize that some people were politically tied up and keeping him a bad guy. But I always, you know, I suffered a lot of uh, false accusation, right? I think that is one of the, like, you know, it's a race thing in America, you know, because of our hierarchy. Right. And, and, uh, you know, you follow, you're always treated with suspicion. And so I'm really sensitive to the false accusation. Um, and for me, it was a real, and so if these people, you know, our backgrounds are another point of understanding as well as the emotional flip they have to make, right. If they mm-hmm. live their life having to fight a different battle for their, because of their identity, Right. It's it's almost like, okay, the type of person that they thought was persecuting them turns out not to be. I don't know, man, it's just really a complex thing. And I and I and I really don't know what to do because I want the truth out there. But I don't want to seem like, you know, I don't it's really hard. Right. It's, It's really it's really tough when you find out something like this. I felt like, oh, yes. Yeah, I found something great. And then it's like, oh, now these people, you know, it, it, it didn't help. It hurt, right? So, yeah. So, so what you're saying is the situation is not yet resolved, right? That there's yeah, the situation. Well, the situation is resolved because the story, as I originally read it, wrote it, is the truth of the story, right? Mm-hmm. But then some people came back and they, where they could, say, the truth was otherwise than how I read the truth, they did. Because the evidence, you have to look at things together and know what that meeting was about, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas they, they, the way they phrased that meeting with Hoey, where they primarily talked about whether or not the hearings would be uh, public, they framed as he talked about policy with the homosexual program. Like he had something to do with the investigation and removal of gay people from government. He didn't. That's not what that was. It was simply how was this Senate hearing going to, what were the procedures going to be for the Senate hearing, not procedures for removing gays from government. Um, And if you read theirs, that's what it, that's what it sounds like. And they, and they're like, so you got to rename it. So it's just like, wow, just because you were in government and that's an argument I don't even want to be a part of. Right. I was just like, you know, I, you know, I, if you know me, you know, I'm a fan of justice. And so once I discovered that the guy was being unjustly, it doesn't, you know, it, it puts me in an awkward position because it's a no win position. And it's like, you know, why would a black guy be saying this white guy who's accused of racism didn't do it? I'm like, because that's the right thing to do. If, if, you know, if, if, if one person is unjustly persecuted, we're all in danger of being unjustly persecuted. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to uh, I'm going to do what I can. You know, I'm going to stand on right principle. So let's see where it ends up. Um, I'm going to give them a little time and uh, I, I have to answer. So, um, but only about the facts. I'm not going to, they, they personally attacked me, right? And they personally attempted to discredit my work, but I'm not going to respond to any of that. Hmm. Just the facts. Just the facts. Just the facts. Yeah. I really, because let me tell you something I realized, guys. This is a true Dr. Oism. <laughs> It was so good to have Hamid and I in the same thing because we both come up with these crazy thoughts. But and I'm like, thank you, Hamid. So I'm not completely insane. So, all right, gentlemen. Yes. We are currently collectively, forget about Albert Einstein, 
experience in a moment that we consider that we call the word now, right? Yeah, right. Now, right now. Yeah, and right we now. think that our now, this right right now, is the is the now. It is the now that actually exists. Right. It is the actual moment that it actually is. Right now. Right now. Right. And you've always felt that way every moment of your life, right? Yes. Yeah. And every other human who's ever lived has felt that way every moment of their lives, right? Right now. Yeah. So what makes their now invalid or our other nows invalid and this current now the one that's the actual now? Well, I guess it would be the definition of the word now. It's it's but every at every moment it's true. Every moment of your life it it holds. So so of all those nows how can you pick one and say this particular now is the actual now? Like you don't know if you're conscious, if you're actually going through time or your consciousness is going through 3D frames, right? That one slightly different. So anyway, whatever. The point is, to me, it seems like the existence of consciousness makes all timelines co-equal, right? So if you imagine a 3D space, a, a space-time diagram with a world line that represents you, Right. It starts at a certain point and ends at a certain point. That world line kind of exists right there. Right. For every human that ever will live, all their world lines exist. So you, your consciousness could just be going through this world line. And I go through that world. But anyway, given that all timelines are co-equal by the existence of consciousness, that means that it's already a million years from now is as equal as it's a million years before now as it is. It is now. They're all co-equal. Well, a million years is not because human consciousness has only been around for what? <laughs> a couple, 300,000? So right. um, if it's already a million years from now, that means I'm long dead. So what is there to care about? Why care about petty stuff? Why care about drama? Just, you know. Oh, man. Get the most out of your little world line, right? It, it It's already there. The beginning and the end are already there. And it's up to you to make something of yourself and you know in this life what what is it that matters to you you know it's all you know not everybody's a do-gooder like me you know if you just want to spend your you know like like live fast die young you know that's up to you that's your <laughs> wait so you guys are my students i still think of you as young but given my age <laughs> <laughs> is it a now that i think about it <laughs> What's it like to have students who you taught like a while back and now we're like professionals ourselves and like contributing to stuff like, man, is that, is that interesting? It is really, really interesting. And it makes me feel like I wish I had known that when I was starting my life, hmm. you know, that how short, like how quickly you go from being my student, John, to my colleague, Dr. John, <laughs> you know, is like, huh? How did what? That was really fast. Didn't seem that way to you though, did it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know. Those did it. It, it, it didn't it seem that way slow. to me when I was going through it. But when it, I uh, see others go through it, it's like, wow, it happened so quickly. You, you know, and 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 really, you know, the thing that gets me is when we don't achieve our life's potential, and you see young people, right? The opportunity that they have through education. And if they are not able to take or willing to take advantage of that opportunity, you know, they, they don't reckon, they don't understand it. Um, you know, it, uh, you know, it's such a waste of human capital and it really just crushes my heart. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, one of, 
you know, the best thing for me, man, people still contact me. So I, I haven't been able, so my life, you know, the way my life has flowed since I left FIT, I haven't been able to do as much of the international stuff as I've used to. Um, because Florida Tech got out so early, you know, I could just leave every May and go to Africa, right? Um, but people contact me and they're like, dude, you probably don't remember me, but you showed up at my village and I'm a graduate student. I'm about to get my PhD and it's all because of you, you know, uh, you know, that is greater than any freaking paper observation. You know, it's just, yeah, man, that's really, that's really, that's one thing I really, I miss the classroom so much. I miss students like you guys so much. Yeah. The fulfillment of helping people, you know, even if, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, it doesn't really, you know, you can start off from the, you know, if you're a nice person, that's all that matters. You know, it doesn't matter how bad off or how well off. If you're eager and enthusiastic and, and a nice person, I'm, you know, thank you for allowing me to serve you. You know, it, it, <laughs> I, so, th- th- this is amazing. James, you're about to say, well, I, I was going to say, I, there's a question we love to ask that oh, I think you, you segued right into. Yes. We, we ask every person we interview, uh, what advice would you give to someone who, you know, a, a young person who's interested in doing what you do? Yeah. So guys, first off, who does what I do? Nobody does well, what I do. We, we, we don't know what you do. We've been talking I do about so that, much. But, you know, right. So what, what advice would you give you a young person then? Just yeah. It, it, do what I do. So, uh, or, or even just, even just to be, to be successful and, and to, to be in this world that you're in as far as technology, STEM, yeah, you know, yeah, all these various things. Right. Right. So, so, so for me, uh, there's two levels, the fundamentals for success and how to take it to that next level. Right. So working hard is a fundamental. Hmm. Right. Having access to a decent education somehow is a fundamental. Um, you know, going outside of your comfort zone, you know, if, if you can't get it comfortably, being willing to step outside of your comfort zone, being willing to take risk hmm. is is important. And, you know, risking self, you know, risking ego is kind of the day to day risks that you you really encounter, right? You're not risking a million dollars of your home every day, but you kind of risk your ego, kind of, right? By putting yourself out there to be rejected. Um, but now taking it to the next level, things that allowed me to take it to the next level. One of them is, um, so the very first thing that allowed me to take things to the, to the next level was the idea of multiplying myself, multiplying my efforts, um, where the people working for me, I really just turn things over to them, you know, cause I'm the kind of person who likes to do things for myself. Uh, and so that wasn't like life changing and world changing for me. One thing that was world changing for me that I didn't know was world changing was helping others. Right. Mm-hmm. So my whole TV opportunity came out of helping others. Um, the way I got on the scientific advisory board was this woman was looking for talent for discovery and she contacted me and several other physicists. We talked to each other about it. They were all afraid I was going to get the role. 
<laughs> and contacted me. They're like, Hakeem, did they contact you? I'm like, yeah, like, look, man, <laughs> go take my role. Right. But it turns out none of us got it. But the woman who uh, recommended me for the role had in, was an undergrad at Stanford. She said, yo, man, I remember you. And I remember you used to help a lot of people. You know, I used to run programs for helping people and stuff. She's like, so I'm going to try to help you out. And that's how she got me on that scientific advisory board. Right. Yeah. Just because I help people. I think Ted uh, becoming a Ted fellow was all about, you know, my Africa work. Right. And being a Ted fellow, uh, it turns out, got me a manager to train me to make a professional career out of speaking and TV. Hmm. Right. How to turn the opportunity into an actual career. Um, So helping others, even though I didn't do it for to get anything out of it like that right i was just doing it to do it uh it yields results for you it's kind of like research right you know you know you're just trying to understand the universe but economy comes out of it right so i'm just trying to be useful and and help where i can and uh opportunity came out of it now another thing that changed my life was um i've always been a bit of a hustler you know um, and I've always been kind of paranoid. I don't trust having a single job. So I always have a side hustle. Hmm. So when I read this next thing, that made it a lot easier to transition. So somewhere around 2010, I saw an article that said the average millionaire has seven lines of income. And I thought about it and I was like, wow, yeah, if I have a job, because pretty much, you know, I got paid, uh, you know, every two weeks. Now I'm a professor at Florida Tech. My mortgage took all but like a couple hundred dollars of one of those checks, right? So I'm never going to be living beyond check to check. You know, so I was getting as many hustles as I could, but seven hmm. simultaneously, right? It's a lot. It's a lot. But I've been able to pull it off in large measure. And what I've discovered is, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to have five hundred K lines of incomes than it is to have one 500 K line of income. Interesting. But in order to create a line of income, you need help from professionals. I was really lucky in the sense that Ted had a program uh, for Ted fellows where they pay for um, professional help for you. So they paid for this woman named Adore English to help me out. And she did it work pro bono um, to, to get me to the next level. And, you know, I would have had to pay thousands were it not for that. You know, so luck is always, but, but when I say nobody does what I do, you know, I have a certain level of hustle um, and I have a certain level of paranoia, you know, and I have a certain level of boredom. Like, uh, you know, were you guys there when Eric Perlman moved next door to me? Professor Eric Perlman. We were there when he was there, but I don't I don't remember where he was. So he was up with the other astronomers on the third floor, and ultimately he ended up moving next door to me so that they put all the loud people in one place. But anyway. (laughs) I do remember that. (laughs) The reason why I bring it up, because he told me one time I was asking him how he got involved. I might have him mixed up with somebody, but I think it was him, um, how he got involved in studying uh, jets of galaxies, right? And 
he said something, if I recall, like he got involved with them in an undergraduate research project. And I'm like, there is no way in hell I could be working on the same project, the same part of nature all of my career. It just couldn't happen. I just get bored. Right. So, you know, my level of hustle and exploration, you know, is on another level. Right. So I'm, I'm doing so many things at all the time. You know, my life is like, you know, I have to like dump from time to time because it just becomes too much. Um, and it's getting like that right now. In fact, you know, I, you know, the pandemic was kind of like, you know, it was a financial disaster, but it was like, whoo, I get a break. I get some relief. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, man, there's so much inefficiency in life. If you're willing to uh, say, look, I'm not going to play your game, you know, I'm going to only interface where it really matters. Then because, man, you know, there's too many meetings. There's too many, you know, just come sit in this chair and be present. You know, there's too much of that. It just, you know, I, I, you know, I can't if I'm not actively involved in something, it's, it's really hard on me. You know, my you know, my ADD, which I don't actually have, it's just too bad. <laughs> I went to them and I was like, diagnose me, I have ADD. They're like, you don't. <laughs> you know, James, this this kind of conversation makes me want to ask the most important question. Yeah, I always, no. <laughs> I, I always want no, to we, give you the opportunity before I do. No, no, I think you know, I I think we're getting pretty close to the end, but we have, we have a question that's more important than all the rest put well, together. The way I often like to put it, you know, all the things that we've talked about, this is all important, don't get me wrong, but this all leads up to this question, which is the following. Hakeem, Dr. Olashay, yes, what sir. is your favorite pizza topping? Oh, I typically get pepperoni, sausage, and jalapenos. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. But again, you know, variety is the spice of life. So, hey, check this out, man. I've been watching... YouTube videos. Absolutely. And I've become really interested in biology, microbiology, and geology. Mm. And in a way, I'm thinking that life is geology. But beyond that, did you guys know that spices are toxins? Nor did yeah. I. I mean, that, that, that's why they're spicy, so that like they don't get eaten. Exactly. It's a defense exactly. mechanism. Yeah. But the reason why people in warm places make their food so spicy is because it's of its antitoxin properties. But I always heard that spicy foods spoil more quickly. So what's the truth? Well, according to YouTube, <laughs> so that's why we like spice, right? That meant it killed stuff has been killed off. Well, now you got me a little worried because I love spicy food. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, introduce yeah. some toxicity here, but fascinating. No, you're too big. It's not meant to kill you. It's meant to kill, you know, the oh, microbes. So when you put oh, those, okay. so when you put the jalapenos on the pizza, it, it's, it's not going to harm us necessarily. So yeah. what you're saying is there's no microbes on the jalapeno because it's so spicy. I, That's what they said. I'm repeating So it's that. safe. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I like I often heard that a lot with like licorice. They say, "Oh, licorice is toxic. Don't eat too much of it." Oh, like, hey, how so much I, do I have to eat? Before? I saw one a while back about why he, I, I looked up why did you know 
how did you know who, who thought to put leaves in water and drink it? Well, tea, <laughs> yeah. the tea. And I, one yeah. said something along the lines of, you know, there were waterborne diseases, and some people mm-hmm. learned if you boiled your water, right? You know, oh, you you've heard this before? No, go ahead. Oh, yeah, that that would, uh, you know, it, you, you're safer, and so they found ways to make it more palatable by, uh, you know, adding the tree leaves. Um, oh, because boiled water doesn't taste very good. But let me tell you something funny. When I was a TED fellow, they had a lot of free stuff, right? Cheese, you know, because we were in Scotland, scotch, and uh, there was a tea setup. And, uh, you know, they weren't all about the crazy coffees, but they were about the crazy tea. So I went over to talk to the tea person and try some teas after several days because, you know, I'm not a tea person, right? It's a little fancy for me. I'm a simple guy. <laughs> so uh, I go over there, and, you know, they're being very uh, informative. And they're like, yo, you want to try the most expensive tea in the world? And I was like, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And they're like, it's $20,000 a kilogram. And I was Why? like, holy cow, that's really crazy. And then after a while, I went down, and I was like, $20,000 a kilogram? That's $20 a gram. That's the same price as weed on the street. That ain't <laughs> the most expensive tea is only the price of weed. That come on, tea, you can do better that's than what that. I, that's what I was thinking. Like a kilogram, that's a that's a that's, lot of cups of tea. That's a lot of cups of tea, right? That's, that's not even very fancy. A hey, is there some way to, to to store it <laughs> individually wrapped? Uh, yeah. <laughs> ounces or something like <laughs> yeah. that's a lot of tea. I'm like, what makes it so expensive? They're like, oh, the tree is rare. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm like, because it just tastes like tea. Let me tell you yeah. another time, man. When I was at the end of grad school, you know, uh, quantitative modeling in finance was relatively new, hmm. and so people who had done uh, computational modeling, such as myself. Were being, you know, who were in physics were being recruited into finance. They they call that going over to the dark side. Yeah, well, I went over to the dark side eventually through this TV stuff, right? So, yeah, Eric Perlman, <laughs> Eric Perlman straight up called me a sellout. I, <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, I'm the one who used the word sellout, and his exact phrase was, "You're one to talk," <laughs> and I was like, "What, what? Eric?" Me? He's right. So, <laughs> what was I talking about? <laughs> Quantitative finance? Yes. Oh, yeah. So, these finance guys took me out to recruit me, and they bought me something like 40-year-old McAllen or something like that. Whoa. They were like, oh, this is $75 a shot, I think, or 150 a shot, something like round number like that. Yeah. And I was like, thanks. Like, <laughs> like you know. What did I know? Like, I didn't know one scotch from another. You know what I mean? These, you know, why spend a hundred? You could have got me a shot of Jack Daniels, dude. I would not have known the difference. Told me it was 40 year McCallum. <laughs> Today, I know the good stuff. I was going to say. I was going to say, you know, if, if that's one of your first ones, it's like, well, it just tastes like all the other ones. You know, what's actually fascinating about that, too. Those really longly aged ones, every year it ages in the barrel. Some of it evaporates. So it becomes rare not only because it's, it's just such a burden to have the barrel for that long and have continuity, but because the actual amount of liquid in the barrel wow. reduces at, wow. they, they called, constantly. They called, they called the angel share. Right. What's that? So, what did you say? 
Okay. They call it the angel share. What's so called the, the angel the, share? The, the part that disappears. So oh. a, a certain amount of it disappears through the barrel. So does it become less uh, alcoholic because alcohol evaporates I think quickly. It, after about 20 years, it just kind of goes into steady state. Wow. Interesting. So yeah. like the difference between like a 20 and a 30 and a 40 year is pretty much actually the same. I'm talking about wow. expert. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think uh, this is this has been an excellent recording. I think now's as good a time as any to to say uh, thank you for coming well, on the show. Good to Hakeem. see you guys, man. Any uh, I, I say that? Uh, well, I say the final question we usually ask people is, you know, where can they follow you? And, you know, absolutely. You know, learn more and read your book. And listen, I am in a series that's going to be coming out on Netflix hopefully this year. It's being mm-hmm. delivered this month. Uh, it's called Bacon Impossible. I'm a judge. Uh, it's a show where um, there is a scientific component to the cooking, and I am the scientific judge. That is such a cool concept. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And it's big. Trust me. We were in these. We were in that studio like 15 hours a day. You know, it was kept at like 60 degrees because you know cakes don't do well at high temperatures. Um, and there's three judges, just like um, American Idol. You know, you have your main British judge who's an executive producer, the woman, right, who's an expert in the cooking side, and the black guy, Randy Jackson, <laughs> me. And our uh, – what's the guy's name? The uh, the guy who hosts American Idol? Randy? Is that Ryan C- Ryan, that Ryan, Ryan Seacrest, yeah. 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 yeah, we have our guy who's, you know, a guy. And then the guy. you know, yeah. But why they why they bringing a spaceman in to, to judge cakes? Uh, like I said, there's a scientific component of it. If your cake okay. has to fly, you need somebody who knows aeronautics. Okay. Right? Okay. Um, and then I have my book is coming out June 15th. June 15th. Yep. And so, of course, the next season of How the Universe Works um, is coming out. And uh, yeah, so things are uh, things are always busy. Fantastic, and and there's always going to be oh, those social media, Twitter, yeah. LinkedIn, and Instagram. Hakeem Olushay. Yeah, and it's and, uh, it's spelled it, it's spelled like Olu sexy, but you replace the X with a Y. There you go, and the Y <laughs> with an I. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah, that yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, for me, it's always been passing by random TVs and looking out because uh, that's that's generally how I've spotted you. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> whenever, people, whenever there's a big event, often you're on the scene. I hear my voice. And they're ex- like, hey, exactly. what are you doing in my house? <laughs> I know that voice. Well, and you know what's this- so funny is the number of people that have me contact them to uh, so their kids know they're not lying, that we're buddies. <laughs> Oh really? I really that, that might be me. No, I really know him. I swear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again, Dr. O, for coming on the show. Hopefully we'll keep in touch. Absolutely, guys. Anytime. You know I love you guys. Best of luck with all future ventures. You too. Absolutely. Call me anytime. All right. Absolutely. All right. Peace. Take care.